Ephesians chapter 5. We're looking at God's help with um, at Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. As one of my seminary professors said about the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, you can really divide it up with just three verbs. Three verbs. You can have sit, walk, and stand. So Paul, and especially in the first three chapters, he's talking about believers being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you see Paul use the word walk over and over again. Believers are to walk or live in a certain way in light of the gospel. And then especially in chapter 6, we are to stand firm in the faith, defending and not surrendering for a moment any of the gains in the Christian life. And so we're continuing picking that up, um, especially in the walk portion. Paul has been teaching us how we're to live as Christians distinctly in the world. So Ephesians chapter 5, looking today at verses 3 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul writes, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, there's probably no more harm done to the church than by unholy and compromising Christians. Unholy and compromising Christians do more harm to the church than some of the fiercest enemies, pagan enemies in the world. The name of Christ is more tarnished by immoral and hypocritical Christians who look and act no differently than the immoral world around us. And perhaps there's no greater evidence of this than some of the scandals that have rocked the church in the past few decades. You can think of some of the most prominent names. I wonder if you've heard of these names before. Uh, Robbie Zacharias, Bill Hybels, Brian Houston, Carl Lentz, Ted Haggart. Uh, these are just a few names of some of the most prominent Christian pastors, at least in the West and especially in America, who, through a variety of sexual and money scandals, have fallen from grace, as they say, and tarnished the rep rep uh, reputation of the church. All of these men, those names I just mentioned, were prominent leaders of very large churches and mega-ministries. And all of them, as I said, were found guilty of some kind of sexual misconduct or money, uh, money schemes. Just take Robbie Zacharias, for example, if you've heard that name before. 
Uh, Ravi Zacharias was a very well-known, influential Christian apologist, traveling the world and went to many of the world's most prominent academic and even financial institutions where he would defend the Christian faith and give very convicting lessons and teachings on why the Bible is true and why the Christian faith makes sense. However, Ravi Zacharias's ministry was seriously tarnished after he died in May of 2020. It came to light after his death that he had actually been using his reputation as a Christian leader to sexually abuse hundreds of women, especially massage therapists in the U.S. and around the world. And after his death, it came to light um, on his many of his mobile devices, for example. There were hundreds of contact uh, details and pictures of these massage therapists that he would target for sexual favors. But not only that, he had used thousands of dollars in ministry funds to cover up and um, hush up the people that he had abused. Scandals like that are devastating, not only for Christians, but because they damage the reputation of the church. Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, and you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven, and yet we see scandals like this from prominent Christian leaders, no less. And while they might be tempted to point the finger at these types of people and say, shame on you, the fact is, is that we're all tempted by sins like this. And we just don't have the public platform that they did to fall from grace as they did. But these kinds of sad examples should cause us to take a hard look at ourselves. They should cause us to look at the sin in our own lives because our own salvation and the mission of the church is at stake. Our mission as a church is to walk and talk and act and think different from the wicked world around us. And that call to holy living is at the heart of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 5 verses 3 through 7. Our conduct as Christians, especially our sexual conduct, and our attitudes towards sex in particular, must look different than the world around us. It's true of the Ephesian church. It's true for us today as well. So the main thing I want us to take away from this text, the main thing I think Paul is telling us, as he was telling the Ephesians, is this. Christian, walk distinctly in this world by living a holy chaste and thankful life. Walk distinctly in this world by living a holy, chaste, and thankful life. I think Paul gives us here kind of two parts to that exhortation. Verses 3 and 4, he talks about first the high call of holy living, and then in verses 5 through 7, he gives reasons why we are to live that way. So first look at me again at verses 3 through 3 and 4, because Paul's going to really give here two commands of that high call to holy living. And the first way that we see that is in verse 3. Paul says, don't make any room for sexual immorality. Look back there, he says in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So look, Paul is talking about Ephesus here. Ran this church in Ephesus, the city. You might think Las Vegas is bad. You might think Bangkok is bad, or New York 
as a decadent city today. Let me tell you, it's got nothing on Ephesus really, okay? The city of Ephesus was known for sexual immorality, known for sexual exploits. Uh, this city was not only known for gambling, idolatry, sorcery, there were even Jewish sorcerers, we're told, in Acts 19 that are in that city. Adultery, as I said, um, prostitution in the temple. Not only that, Ephesus was the home to a major tourist destination, pilgrimage site, business center, local hangout, hangout spot, all rolled into one. It was the Temple of Diana, which was a huge attraction at that time. And the Temple of Diana was kind of a sex palace because that goddess was portrayed as this multi-breasted woman that people would go and worship for sexual pleasure and uh, effect. And so, yet yeah, Ephesians knew all about sexual temptation in their lives because at that temple there's ritual prostitution, as I said, but it was celebrated in the city. It's not like this was happening in corners of the city, sexual immorality or something, down dark alleys where people hid it. It was actually in the open. People living these lives of um, wild sexual exploits and being proud about it in many cases. And so when Paul writes here sexual immorality, using the Greek word porneia, you need to know that he's talking about any sort of sexual activity that is outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. You need to know then that this is covering pornography, check, adultery, check, prostitution, check, premarital sex, check, incest, check, homosexual, homosexual activity, check. Paul's laying out pretty much everything there in those two words that we have in the English language sexual immorality, and all impurity, he adds. And when Paul talks about covetousness there in verse 3, you also need to know that he's not just talking about financial greed. That could be true, but he's really speaking it in terms of sexuality. Covetousness is really lusting greedily after another person's body, uh, to the point where it's insatiable, almost like can't control in a sense. People are so greedy after another person's body. That could be wanting to take advantage of that person's body, or it could actually also mean, I want to be in that person's body, as in I want to replace myself with that person's body. So, a man looking at a woman and thinking, I wish I was in that woman's body. Or a woman looking at a man's body and saying, I wish I was not in a woman's body, but in a man's body. That word covetousness can include that type of sin, coveting someone's body in that way. So let me slow down here because now we're just really hitting why this is relevant to our lives, right? Today in this world. Because you're going to hear today that there are Christians out there, uh, liberal and progressive Christians, who are going to at this point say, now wait a minute, Pastor John, uh, what you're about to say or what you're saying uh, is not really true of Paul in his time. You see, Paul didn't really understand, they say, something called sexual orientation. That wasn't a concept back in Paul's day. Or they're going to say, you know, Paul, when he writes these words, he didn't really have in mind what we know of today with two men living together in a loving relationship. As long as they're not abusing each other, that's okay. That's what Paul would say. You know, they would say Paul had in mind something called pederasty, which is usually an older man, much older man, 
sexually abusing a much younger man or boy. That's what Paul had in mind. When it comes to today's world and sexual immorality, you need to be aware of those types of arguments because they're being made uh, among the church today. So let's be clear about this. Let's uh, blow up those arguments right now and those false ways of thinking. Because what Paul actually has in mind here, if you really know the Greek words that Paul is using, you know that it's not just restrictive to those things, but it actually has in mind all homosexuality, some homosexual activity, all of those things outside of the marriage between one man and, and one woman. And if we're really honest about Paul's context here, we can understand that. Because Paul's not ignorant, right, when he's writing this church in Ephesus. He's been there. He knows. He spent two years there. You know, he's not an idiot about what's going on in Ephesus. He knows there's a difference between um, one man abusing a, a boy and two people, two men, two people in consensual relationship. He knows that. Right? Just because we're in the 21st century doesn't mean we have so much more knowledge than Paul on these issues. And so we got to clear this up. Only liberals and progressives are making the argument that Paul actually didn't know these things. Our conservative Christians are actually in agreement with non-Christian scholars when it comes to this issue. It's only the people who are claiming a progressive way who would argue that Paul has something else in mind here. So again, Ephesus, city steeped in sexual immorality, and the Ephesians are living among it. So you need to also know that when Paul writes this, then Ephesians Christians, these Christians are under tremendous pressure to conform to that culture around them. In many cases, they're coming out of it. Right? These are Christians who have lived in Ephesus maybe their entire lives, and so as they come out of this culture, Paul's teaching them, admonishing them, don't go back there, don't be swept up in this trend, don't be swept up in the broader culture. They're to walk distinctly as Christians. Now, while the city of Ephesus might be in ruins today, the fact is, Ephesus is not ancient history. Because we today live in just as much of a sexually explicit environment as the Ephesians did. Ephesus is a, it's a paragon of any of the great cities today. Whether that's New York or London or Paris or Tokyo or Bangkok or even here in Shanghai. We also live in a city and come from many places in the world where sexual temptation is very real. Now, in our city today, we're not going to see a temple to Diana or some other god or goddess that is so sexually explicit. I don't know one. The fact of the matter is, we live in a city that buys and sells sex every day. If you go into any of the major malls here, you just try walking through one of those malls and not seeing advertising for some sexually explicit sort of um, uh, ad for clothing or something like that. Not to mention everything that comes on TV or movies or social media. And in China as well, according to reports, the attitudes towards sexual behavior are becoming more and more like the West every year. According to reports, there's an increased acceptance of casual sex, 
living with boyfriends and girlfriends, even here in China, it's experiencing its own sexual revolution. But China is relatively conservative when it comes to the West in terms of sexual acceptability. Americans, in particular, have become more likely to say that certain sexual behaviors are morally acceptable uh, compared with polls that were taken 8 and 20 years ago. Now, let's just be honest here. Sexual attitude, acceptance, especially in the West, um, let's be honest here, when it comes to attitudes towards homosexual activity, you know, this is sort of old news that the majority of people find that acceptable today. I mean, in America, at least, or about 70% of Americans find it acceptable for someone to be in a homosexual relationship. And almost 70% of Americans say that having a baby outside of marriage is, is acceptable. And over 70% of Americans say sex between an unmarried man and an and unmarried woman is acceptable. But that's old news. If you're still thinking about that as being the trend in the West in America, uh, we're moving well beyond that. So let me give you an idea of where the line is really being pushed. Because it's not homosexual activity anymore, it's not unmarried sex or anything like that. The line now is more things like polygamy, believe it or not. In the West and in America, attitudes toward polygamy have really changed, going from 4% of acceptance among Americans to now 20% of acceptance towards polygamy. Or the line that's really being pushed that we need to be aware of is polyamory. I don't know if you know what polyamory is. If you don't know, you need to know because polyamory is a type of relationship where all partners in this relationship agree that they can have romantic or sexual relationships with more than one person. So Bob and Jill and Joe can all have a relationship together because it's consensual. And even outside of that, with more people, if they consensually agree to it. That's polyamory. I wonder if you think how, wonder if you know how common that is in the States today. Does anybody here have a cat? Or know of somebody who has a cat? According to recent research studies, thank you, I know you have a cat. <laughs> Shy to raise your hand. According to research studies in the states today, the number of people who would like to engage in polyamorous activity is one in six, which is the same number for the number of people who have a cat in the United States. And the number of people who have actually engaged in polyamorous activity is one in nine in the United States, which is the same ratio or number of the people who have graduate degrees in the United States. So we need to know this is becoming a lot more common. And the pressure is going to come against definitely you younger kids to accept this and even among the older generation. It's going to be more popular. This is where the line is nowadays. And so we know, just like the Ephesians did, that when you're holding to a Christian sexual ethic, you're swimming upstream. The trends today are very powerful to accept a sexually immoral lifestyle, as the Bible lays out. But with that flood of sexual immorality and temptation for Christians to join in, or at least passively approve of it, what does Paul say? What does he say here? He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul is crystal clear here. As a Christian, you're not to read, you're not to watch, you're not to listen to, consume, all of that kind of stuff. Certainly if you're engaging it, or even if you're consuming that stuff in popular media, then you are ignoring scriptural warnings and you're likely engaging in sin. And the problem is, you might not even give serious thought to it because everybody else around you is doing it. Do you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying these sexual acts should not even be talked about approvingly in the church, let alone engaged in in the church. So Paul isn't saying here homosexuality, polygamy, polyamory, transgenderism are just all a matter of indifference, that we can agree to disagree as Christians, they're just secondary tertiary tissues uh, issues, and it has no bearing on anyone's salvation. So let's just find a, let's make a search, let's make up a committee and find a third way. It's not what Paul's saying. And Paul's not in favor of forming a listening circle where people can share where they are in the sexual spectrum. They can share their gender-bending stories. They can share about their preferred pronouns. Uh, Paul's not in favor of that. Paul's not in favor of setting up a, search, a study committee in the church and discovering how unmarried couples living together can be members in good standing in the church. He's not about that. Nor is he about creating a safe and generous and gracious space in the church for people who blatantly and unrepentingly practice homosexuality, premarital sex, and commit adultery. And nor is Paul about creating and hosting conferences that give a platform for self-professing LGBTQ plus Christians to help them live out or even empower them in that identity. It's not what Paul is saying here. Not only engaging in, but to talk approvingly of such sexual immorality is already a defeat for the church. That's what Paul is saying. So when people look to the church, they should think of even the suggestion of sexual immorality in the church as being out of place as a Buddhist pagoda in the church or a shrine to Muhammad in the church. So friends, you can see that Paul's call to the Ephesian church here is far from being outdated. There's perhaps nothing more about the Christian life today that will invite more criticism, skepticism, and even hate today than the call to live a chaste life. But as Christian, you're called to walk differently. You're called to walk differently than the world around you, including in your sexual behavior by living a chaste life life. Well, that brings us to the second thing that Paul commands here when it comes to the high call of holy living. Verse 4, Paul gives a second command. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Okay, so understand, when Paul's talking to the Ephesians, he knows they're not just known for sexual promiscuity and all these things. They're also known for their mouths and misusing their mouths and abusing their mouths. The obscene talk that comes from their mouths. Ephesians were known in that day for giving a really good sexual innuendo, being facetious, 
they were known as masters of that kind of wit. So by filthiness here, Paul is talking about dirty and obscene and foul language. Certainly swear words, for example, that used to be bleeped out on TV. I don't even know if they're bleeped out anymore, censored out, at least in the States. I think they're in China. Certainly that's what filthiness is. Or foolish talk, Paul uses the word, the Greek word morologia, which means moronic talk. So what he means by that is empty, wasteful, degrading talk that's unfitting for Christians. You know, the opposite of what he says in, I think, Colossians when he says, your speech must be seasoned with salt. You know, as Christians were to speak with seasoning, preserving talk, giving life, uh, but not foolish talk, Paul says here. And crude joking. Crude joking or crude humor. Paul's talking about, you know, sexual innuendo or hinting at sexual behavior, making a joke of sexually suggestive um, comments. So all of these things, as John Stott said, are referring to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. So let's be clear here, though. Now, the Bible does not condemn joking and humor. In fact, the Bible upholds humor in proper ways and proper times. Proverbs 17, verse 22, for example, says, a joyful heart is good medicine. And Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for weeping and a time to laugh. So laughter is not only good for the soul, but it's also been proven to be good for the body. Maybe you've heard that expression before, laughter is the best form of medicine. So it's not that laughing and humor is out of, out of bounds for the Christian life. That's not what Paul's saying, of course. But when it comes to dirty talk and coarse joking, there's no place for that in the Christian life. And let me give you four reasons why. The four reasons why I'm borrowing here from a guy named Kent Hughes, who's pretty helpful for me on this. He says, you should not be joking in this way, coarse talking, because number one, that kind of humor, it sort of teases the line between what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And when you tease that line, it can quickly degenerate into inappropriate things. So I don't know about you, but I've been in situations before you're having jokes, somebody has a really weak joke, and somebody follows up with a very off-color joke, a very inappropriate joke. People kind of maybe hesitatingly laugh, but that's followed up by another inappropriate joke, and it just sort of keeps spiraling downward into worse and worse jokes. Well, one reason that we should avoid coarse joking is because we want to avoid that downward spiral. But number two, that kind of humor also makes us more vulnerable in how we view sin in general. Meaning that the more we joke that way, the more we're going to sort of become blind to sin when we actually see it. Or another way of thinking about it is we're just kind of numbing ourselves, becoming more and more callous to sin the more that we joke about sin. But a third way, there's actually a connection. So the third number of reason why this is to be avoided, there's a connection between our mouths and our hearts, right? Jesus says, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. We want to avoid coarse joking and humor because it's reflecting a dirtiness, a pollutedness in our hearts. But finally, number four, the Bible actually says that we will give account one day for every single word that we speak. Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Paul's clear on this. 
And we need to be clear on this. As Christians, we're called to act differently from the world around us, and that means not only by what we do, but also by what we say. So we're not to consume and read and watch certain things, but we're also to avoid obscenity, avoid moronic talk, foolish talk, coarse joking, because doing so, engaging in those things, creates an environment in which they're more and more acceptable and eventually lead us to promote that kind of practice. So that's why we want to avoid them. Now the antidote, you just want to, don't just want to avoid those things or avoid that behavior. There's actually an antidote. There's actually a, an approved way of speaking. That's what Paul says here. He says the antidote for that is what? Thankfulness. So instead of filthiness, coarse joking, we're instead, as Christians, to be continually thankful, right? Paul also writes in to the Thessalonians, constantly giving thanks. Why? Give thanks to God for sexual purity, for sexual gifts that he's given to us. We don't mock them. We give thanks for them. So contrary to what non-Christians might believe about Christians, it's not that we as Christians are closed-minded when it comes to sex, right? You know, some people have the stereotype of Christians as being prudish or priggish. Uh, we never want to talk or think about sex. That's not true. As Christians, we love sex in the sense that God has gifted it to us. It's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. And that's why we don't want to see it joked about, right? We don't want to see it sullied. We don't want to see it devalued. We want to give thanks to God for it and thereby giving honor to it in the proper place. And so Paul says, don't joke about any of God's gifts, but especially sex. And so Christians are to act differently than the world around us by living chaste and holy lives and thankful lives. Thankful to God that he's given us the gift of sex and everything that comes with that. Okay, so these are the commands. Paul's high call of holy living. Now let's look at some of the reasons why he calls us to live this way. He gives us three reasons, I believe, in these verses. Reason number one actually comes in verse three. First reason is you are a saint. That's why you're called to live a, uh, a holy life. Paul calls Christians saints here in verse three, but also I think nine times in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul calls Christians saints, right? Set apart ones, that's probably what that word means, holy ones. And you don't have to be dead to be a saint. You don't have to have performed some supernatural work in order to be a saint. Uh, you don't have to live in Rome to be a saint. The way the Bible speaks about it is everyone who has been born again, whose heart has been changed, who's been empowered by the Holy Spirit, who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is therefore a saint. You no longer are dead in your sins and trespasses, but you're alive again, set apart for holy service to God. And so that means you are to be holy as God is holy, right? 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16 says, But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. As a saint, you're also supposed to grow in holiness. 
That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will, what God's plan for your life is? Right here in 1 Thessalonians 4, sanctification, that you would grow in holiness as a saint, more and more putting off sin, putting off the old self, more and more coming alive to the new self in Christ Jesus. But you're also to serve God in holiness. Peter also writes, you are to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not just to refrain from sin, not just to say no to sin, as important as that is, but actually to use your faculties, use your mind, your body, your soul, to serve God, to love others as God has loved you in Christ, to live chaste and thankful lives as a part of your holy duty as a saint. That's reason number one. Reason number two, though, I wonder if this shocks you a little bit, what Paul has to say here in verse 5. He says, Your inheritance in the kingdom depends on living holy and chaste lives and thankful lives. Don't miss this. Paul's emphasizing this. Now, if he could, you put a highlighter right now and underline and bold what he's about to say. That's what he says, for you can be sure of this. That's what he's doing. He's highlighting what he's about to say. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. These be shocking words. I don't know if Paul can be much stronger to say that unchaste, promiscuous, casual, unrestrained, ungodly sexual behavior has no place on earth or in Christ's church or in heaven. The Bible repeats this warning several times actually. Galatians 5, for example, and 1 John 3, and also in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says there, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is very clear, friends. No unrestrained, sexually immoral, unchaste, unrepentant person will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, do Christians commit these sins? Yes, unfortunately, sadly. But if you are a true Christian, you'll hate your sin and turn from it out of your love for God and out of gratitude for the grace that He's shown you in Christ. As someone once said, it's not falling into sin, committing sin that's going to kill you. Just like falling into water is not going to kill you, it's not getting up out of water that's going to kill you. So too, if you fall into sin or commit a sin, it's not that fall into sin that kills you. It's laying in it, not being repentant, and not forsaking that sin that will kill you and keep you from the kingdom of heaven. That's Paul's second reason why we are to live holy and chaste and thankful lives, because without a life of holiness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That brings us to the third reason that Paul gives us why we're to live these holy lives. Because he says God's wrath 
comes upon the disobedient. Let no one deceive you with empty words, he writes, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What are those empty words that Paul's talking about? Why does he write empty words? Well, maybe he has empty words like this in mind. You know, God is a God of love. And because God loves all people, he doesn't want any of them to go to hell. So he's not really going to send anybody to hell. You know, it really doesn't matter how you use your body, how you use your mouth, how you use your mind. Because God's God of love. It's empty words like that, or maybe empty words like, you know, God... God really cares about my happiness, right? Um, he wants me to be happy. So therefore, it's okay to, to do what I think is going to make me happy. right? He wants me to be the happy. So it's okay if I divorce my wife and marry this other woman, because that was going to make me happy. And God wants me to be a happy person, right? It's okay. Or maybe it's empty words like, you know, it doesn't really matter what someone believes in this life possible for someone to be a Christian even if they never live or even they, they ever care about a life of obedience to Jesus Christ they're all empty words my friends they might sound nice people can come up with all kinds of pleasant sounding words and phrases and arguments you can try to get themselves off the hook so to speak Paul's clear here those kinds of words, though, they won't turn away the coming wrath of, God's, of God against sin. Those kinds of words, they're not going to turn away God's holy disgust against all that is unholy. They're not going to turn away his righteous judgment against unrighteousness or his, or his decisive action against unfaithfulness. But notice what Paul says in this verse about God's wrath. When I first read this, I thought, oh yeah, yeah, God's wrath is coming in the future, and when he comes again, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, he will judge the living and the dead. I don't know when that's going to be. That's sometime in the future. Okay. Not actually what Paul's saying. Look again, he says, God's wrath comes. It's present tense. It's certainly God's wrath is coming in the future, but it's also now. I don't know what this might have looked like for the Ephesians, but I know for the Corinthians, God's wrath came when it, people there took the Lord's Supper sinfully. Paul says that some of them were asleep, died, because of their sin. Or you think of the book of Acts, for example. Ananias and Sapphira, they lie, it says, to the Holy Spirit, and they died where they stood. God's wrath came upon them Immediate. We should read stories like that. We should hear Paul's words, in other words, like that. We should read about, hear about stories like Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, Carl Lentz, Ted Haggard, whoever. And it should cause us to really search our hearts, to ask ourselves. Am I really living a holy and chaste life? Am I taking God's word seriously? Have I really thought about 
these words as God's kind warning to me that his judgment against sin is very real and it's not only future. And John Calvin once said that God does not show his wrath to his children in order to frighten them, but in order to draw them to himself as much as he can. Friends, these are kind warnings to you when it comes to God's wrath, that we would turn away from sin and live holy lives as his saints that please him. Your heavenly Father wants to keep you from sin. You must continually watch out for the vices in your own life. You must do everything you can to protect yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ from sin. And we can see around us today sad stories of people who have engaged in sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. But Paul's point is clear. He makes it again in verse 7. He says, therefore, though, do not become partners with them. Don't become partners with them. Now let me just say, as a church, as Christians, we are not shutting out anybody from coming to the church. We give a free offer of the gospel to anybody. Anybody is welcome here, regardless of their background, regardless of their sexual orientation, their past lives, whatever they've done previously. Gospel calls welcome to everyone. In this church, and I pray for, for all true gospel-preaching churches. But that's different from condoning and talking approvingly of such sin. That's different than unrepentantly performing it. Paul says, do not make partners with such people. He says, don't join with them in sin. Don't, don't own their sinful lifestyle. Don't approve of it. Don't harness yourself, so to speak, with such people. As Christians, we're called to act differently, to walk differently in this world, especially by living holy and chaste and thankful lives. Paul's showing us here in this passage that the mission of the church is to walk, talk, think, and act differently from the world in such a way that they see the gospel at work in our lives. And in today's world, our sexual conduct and our attitudes towards sex in particular must look different than the world around us. But in short, let me ask you, do you know anything of this life that Paul is talking about? Are you holy? I'm not asking if you're coming to church every Sunday. I'm not asking if you call yourself a Christian. I'm not asking if you're baptized. I'm asking you pointedly, because Paul has put it so pointedly. Are you holy? text ought to make all of us meditate on. Seriously consider your life, your attitude, and your own heart. And then it should send you to God in prayer. Are you holy? Don't tell me that you just think about these things. I'm sure that even Judas thought about holy things. It doesn't matter just what you think about. It doesn't matter what you talk about. It doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what you do. Without holiness, the Bible says, no person 
will inherit the kingdom of heaven. While that might seem harsh, the answer is very comforting. The answer is very good news. In light of that, it's no wonder that scripture says that you must be born again. That you must have a changed and transformed heart if you are to be holy. That you must become a new creature. Because the good news of the gospel is that where there is repentance and reconciliation with God, God is pleased to create in you a clean heart, even from the dirtiest of hearts. But there is hope for any sinner, no matter how lost, no matter how dirty, no matter how entangled you may be in sin. That's the Bible's message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, after he has just said that no sexually immoral person will inherit the kingdom of God, he goes on to say, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Well, friends, don't hope to be holy. Be holy today by Jesus' cleansing blood. Because that good news is offered to you today through faith in Jesus Christ. God's word is sure. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Are you holy? Be holy today. But if you are a Christian, you're holy now through the cleansing and atoning blood of Jesus Christ. It's good news that your old self is gone and you have a new identity in Christ. It's good news that your past does not define you, nor do your present circumstances limit the work of God in you. It's good news that you're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness and holiness. Now, live like it. Paul's exhortation to you. Are you practicing holiness? Are you growing in holiness? You must not only be a Christian in name only, you must not only be a Christian in knowledge, you also must be a Christian in character. As someone once said, if you're not a saint now on earth, you will not be a saint in heaven. Holiness will bring us to heaven. Scripture says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So it will be a mistake to believe that you only need to be justified by God in order to enter the kingdom of God, that you only need to be forgiven of sins. Sometimes as Christians we forget or ignore the fact that the Bible says we're also to be sanctified, inseparable from being justified. There will be no Christian in heaven who has not displayed fruits of holiness or righteousness. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, do not be standing still when it comes to the Christian life. Be growing in holiness, or sin will be growing in you. Be putting to death sexual immorality and covetousness, otherwise it will be growing in you. Ask God, pray from the Holy Spirit and say, God, help me to put those sins to death. Help me to walk in the good works that you've set out for me. Help me. Finish the work that you've started in me. Complete that work. 
God's faithful to answer those prayers. So as the church, we will succeed in our mission when we bravely walk in holiness and live chaste, holy, and thankful lives. Let's ask God now to help us do that. Please pray with me. Our gracious God and ever-blessed Father, who is holy, who is righteous, who is good and gracious and merciful, we praise you that through Jesus Christ, you cleanse us from all of our sins and that you also enable us to live lives of holiness. And so we ask now that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's respond to God's word by asking for his help, that we would not walk and sit and stand with sinners, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, we would sit in the heavenly places, we would walk as a Christian would walk, and we would stand firm in the faith. Let's do that by singing together Psalm 1a. Please stand with me.